Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. We're joined today by Dr. Marsha Chatlin to discuss her latest book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. She dives into the interconnectedness of racism, capitalism, and the rise of the fast food industry over the last 50 years, and how together all of these factors have played a major role in the current health epidemic we're facing in America. But this episode also took a turn into the spirit side as she talks about her own personal feelings around food, nutrition, and what she hopes as a new mother to leave behind for her child. Her work shines a light on why now, more than ever, it's important to change the way that our children view and have access to healthy food. This conversation paints the picture of all of the inputs that impact our food system and really reiterates for me how important our service mission here is at Sakara to truly tackle the issues and make a difference in how future generations build their nutritional habits. I hope that you enjoy this episode, the science and the spirit. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Marsha Chatlin. Well, Marsha, thank you so much for joining us today on the Sakara Life podcast. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for having me as part of this conversation. Yeah. So we like to start off our podcast with the same question to everyone, which is, what is your personal mission here on Earth? What are you here to do? Oh, my gosh. I love that question so much. Um, I think I am here to help people link their curiosity to greater passion and greater depth. I really think my identity as a teacher has shaped every role that I play in life, whether it's a writer, whether it's an activist, whether it's a parent. I think I really am here to help people come closer to the things that they're curious about and to live a life of meaning that's really fueled by the things that interest them and excite them. Wow. I love that. And it's not what I was expecting you to say, but I think that it's so strong and important around this concept of curiosity. I feel like in certain ways, we've as a society, have lost a little bit of curiosity. Maybe it's from just data overload, stimulation overload that we're consuming and having so much thrown at us all the time. But if we can lean into our curiosity and get curious about things, I think it can help us feel more fulfilled and lead to better, stronger relationships amongst people as well. Why is that so important to you? Well, I think that 
having had the experience of people nurturing my curiosity has fundamentally changed my life. When I think about what I was like as a student and the mentors I had who said, you know, you're interested in writing. That's something that you can do professionally. You love teaching. That's something you can do professionally. You want to use history to help people think about the impact they can have in the world. You can do that. I'm one of those rare people that every idea I've ever had or every inkling I've ever had, I've always had a community support me and say, yeah, you could totally do that. Make that happen. And as someone who works in an environment with college students who are often discouraged from being interested in the humanities and the arts or who are discouraged from not running into the highest paying job possible, I've seen how much that has helped me grow as a person and find my place in the world. And so I just think that's so important for us to just be encouraged that if we are developing a passion to really give ourselves the space and the time to see what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. And so how did you discover your passion and interest to write franchise. What led you to that? Well, franchise is a very weird book um, in the sense (laughs) that I wanted to tell a civil rights history of fast food and a fast food history of civil rights because I was very much curious in graduate school about the food justice movement. And I would spend time with people who wanted to think about health and nutrition and access. And I felt like a lot of their conversations were grounded in the spirit of judgment or Mm -hmm. a a lack of knowledge of the real pressures that people who are poor, people who are working poor, people who don't have a plethora of choices and what they can eat and what they can give their families, they just, there was no sense of what that experience was like and how that informs the decisions we make about food. And so for me, I really wanted to put a historical analysis of the ways that people were talking about racial inequality and racial injustice in our food system. We know that we have problems in access to food, and we know that there have been consequences on people's health. But unless we understand the history of how those relationships started, then I don't think that we're really doing true justice to a lot of these big problems. And so for me, it was telling a story that was compassionate, telling a story that was thoughtful about the relationship between racial inequality and food. That was, you know, front and center in my mind when I started thinking about this book. Yeah. And so I would love for you to kind of set the stage for our listeners, you know, even prior to this massive rise of fast food, can you explain a bit about what the restaurant concept represented in relation to racism in America? Like what was going on in that time? Yeah, so the fast food industry, I think, is one of the best lenses to understand the dynamics of politics and food and race in America. So the fast food restaurants that we know today, the big brands, they emerged and became very popular in 
the 1950s. And a lot of the building of fast food was predicated on some of the fixtures that we still have with us today of racial inequality, whether it was the booming of the suburbs that used racial covenants to keep them all white, or the building of highways, which often intersected into communities of color and destroyed the community vitality, whether it was a food system that really depended on low-wage workers, many who came as guest workers from Mexico to harvest the agriculture and to process the meat that was necessary for the fast food industry within the innovative and technology forward ways that we can look at how fast food was able to deliver lots of food in a very cheap and efficient way. We often don't understand that a lot of that was built on racial inequality that was part of the nation's history and is with us today. And so in franchise, I talk about how the inequality of the 1940s and 50s contributed to this industry that by the late 1960s and early 1970s had decided to pivot its focus on an African-American consumer market. And so the movement of McDonald's, particularly out of the suburbs and into the cities, creates a whole set of complicated situations because on one hand, people saw it as this great economic opportunity, but its long-term consequences not only on people's health, but also on labor relations and the impact on the environment, no one could quite anticipate. And I think it brings us to our present moment where people aren't sure what to do with fast food because it has had some economic benefits to African-American communities through philanthropy, and Mm -hmm. it has had incredible consequences in terms of health and work life. Right. And so due to segregation. I mean, the African-Americans, Black community weren't able to eat in restaurants, in these same restaurants for a long time. I mean, you're the expert in this. I'm just reiterating what some of what I learned from your book here. And so when that kind of ended, so to speak, there was a strong desire in that community to eat in restaurants and participate in that American dream and also to be an owner and own these franchises and and follow the American dream that they were pitched by our government in those days. Is that correct? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So for many of us who are learning about the civil rights movement, Many of us have seen those iconic images of newsreels as well as photographs of African-American activists, many of them college students who challenge segregation, and they challenge the practices of separate and unequal lunch counter service or entire restaurants throughout the country that just refuse service of African-Americans or made them go out to like a takeout window in the back or have rules about where they could sit or if they could be served. And so... It's in that context that fast food emerges in the 60s after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that is supposed to end this type of discrimination, but the memories and the fear of the Mm. humiliation and the potential for violence in going to a restaurant where you're not supposed to be, I think that lingered for a lot of African Americans. And so when the fast food industry starts to make this pivot and say, like, this is a place you could be welcomed into, this is a place where you 
you don't have to worry about being accepted. I think that's really powerful. You know, from our perspective today, fast food is this giant force in our society that people have a lot of mixed feelings about. But one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is I wanted to explain that from the vantage point of a consumer market that has been completely excluded and not welcomed into restaurants and made to feel unsafe while traveling, there's a reason why fast food becomes meaningful. And there's a reason why fast food marketing becomes so successful with African Americans in this period of transition where people are able to kind of be in public spaces without fear for their own safety. And I think about, you know, I love restaurants. I love going out. Um, and that feeling of being welcomed into a space is something that we can never mm. overestimate when you are excluded from it. No, absolutely. And so from your perspective, were these fast food restaurants doing something positive in this time? They were some of the only restaurants going out and marketing to this community and really welcoming people in. So this in this moment, was this a positive thing in your mind? Um, I think it was complicated because on mm -hmm. one hand, I think that a lot of people found a lot of joy in being part of this consumer experience. It's interesting. When I was on my book tour, an older African-American woman told me at an event in Kansas City how she remembers going to McDonald's for ice cream for the first time. She went on a date to a McDonald's mm -hmm. and how special it was because she grew up in the Deep South and her grandma never let her go to an ice cream parlor because they would have a whites-only window and a colored-only window. And her grandma didn't want them having that experience. So she said she always had homemade ice cream. And then the first time she was able to go out to McDonald's on this date, it stayed with her decades mm -hmm. later. And so I think that there's something about those experiences that I try to be so respectful of. And I understand that they come at a really high price because McDonald's opening the doors to African-Americans to franchise did create this incredible opportunity for people who were in that position. But again, it came at a really high cost and it didn't quite solve the problems that I think people imagined that it could solve in the late 1960s. It didn't create incredible job opportunities. And I also think that people who entered that business didn't anticipate how much fast food would overtake the American diet and mm. how the size of the food and the preparation of the food would also change in the coming decades. So I think that it's complicated, but I think it reminds us that food is one of the best indicators of access and power in our society and that we have to really focus not just on kind of what food does or doesn't do, but also the history of how it enters a community and how it exits a community. Yeah. Let's double click into the advertising towards African-Americans piece of this and towards women during the fast food boom. You said the choice between a McDonald's and no McDonald's was actually a choice between a McDonald's or no youth job program in regards to improving employment. Can we dig into that a little bit as well? Yeah, you know, I think that when McDonald's started to really target African-American communities, the choice in front of the people who brokered these deals was really layered. And so 
even when people were critical of the fast food industry and they like weren't sure if it would be a net positive, they also knew that there weren't lots of industries that were flocking to the inner city. There weren't a lot of places that were going to offer teenagers jobs. There weren't mm-hmm. a lot of business opportunities that would come with the guarantee of actual bank loans. And so in making that decision, You know, people had to really take the good and the bad. And part of what happens in the 1970s is that McDonald's starts to really craft its advertising towards African-American people. And during this time with that current wave of feminism, fast food is also targeting women. And what they're saying is, look, you may not have time to cook for your family, but here's a place where you can get a good meal for your family for a low price. And Mm -hmm. it was really controversial because on one hand, advertising targeting African-Americans was considered positive because this was a market that had been demeaned and ridiculed an advertisement for such a long time. And the use of Black celebrities made McDonald's very cool in the eyes of a lot of Black consumers. And at Mm. the same time, there was this real uneasy feeling that had emerged among people who were anti-feminists who were saying, wait a second, this is an industry that's saying that women shouldn't be home cooking for their families. (laughs) And it's interesting because like convenience foods, microwaves, frozen dinners, they all were attacked because it was like, well, you know, why is a woman not home cooking for her family? Which is like ridiculous for some on so many levels, but particularly among communities where women had to work outside of the home for a very long time. This wasn't anything new, but this idea that there would be an entire industry that made it easier on women to provide for their families. You know, the 1970s was this really, I think, treacherous cultural moment because people weren't quite sure if these changes were actually good or bad for society. And again, I don't think it can ever be one thing. Right. Yeah. In the 70s, this was the time when women were coming out and burning their bras and really a wave of feminism. And So it's almost like McDonald's, whether they meant it this way or not, was coming out in support of that movement and saying women don't have to just only have a place in the home. And it's interesting, even today, companies, whether they notice it or not, do have a big impact on society, but can have an impact on political movements, whether they mean to or not as well, like this. Well. You know, I think there's always politics in it, right? Because every business has to decide, are they going to get more customers or fewer customers with an action, right? Are they going to build their brand on a set of values or are they going to reject another, you know, set of values? And what's so interesting about convenience foods, convenience foods have been in the American marketplace since the 19th century, But it's how you market the convenience foods that shifts and changes. Mm. After the end of slavery in the United States, convenience foods were marketed to white women as the solution to no longer having an enslaved person preparing your meals. And then during the period 
after World War One, where the nation kind of isolated and closed its borders, it said, here are foods that you can make yourself because there's no longer a wave of European immigrant women who can be cooks and domestic workers. And then in the 1950s, convenience foods were considered a reflection of all this great technology by the food industry. And so it can be the same product and can mean different things. And I think today is really interesting to think about our relationship to food, because I grew up in the 80s when food was not fun. The 80s had like some of the worst recipes because everyone was on these, you know, highly restrictive, low-fat diets yeah. where, you know, it's just like no one would add salt, you know, no salt, no, no flavor kind of diets. You weren't allowed to eat very many eggs. There was concerns about cholesterol. There wasn't a distinction between, you know, what we would say are good fats or bad fats, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so the 1980s was just like really depressing for food. And then there was kind of a movement against it. And now food is so much part of not just our personal choices, but our public identities. As much as we make fun of it, I love watching people's reels about what they're eating on Instagram. And I've, you know, I have taken pictures of things that I've made because I think it shows some of the inequality that still exists because I think for a certain class of people, for working professional women like myself, cooking becomes a leisure activity because I don't Mm -hmm. feel like it's my responsibility as a mom or a wife to cook. And so I can have great joy in cooking. But I think that if this was an expectation for me, I don't think I would want to Instagram everything I made because I'd probably be so annoyed and so tired all the time. No, absolutely. Today, I am very excited to tell you about our Super Bar collection. We recently updated our cult favorites, Detox, Beauty, and Energy Super Bars that you all know and love to ensure that we're continuing to deliver on our commitment to providing you with the best tasting and most nutritious products on the market. These are the perfect on-the-go snack and ensure you don't have to sacrifice quality for convenience. All of these newly formulated bars focus on stabilizing your blood sugar, which, as you know, because you listen to the Sakara Life podcast, is at the core of metabolic health. We have increased the protein in each bar, so it now contains 12 grams. Each bar has 40% of your fiber, which is really important for your microbiome. The sugar has been cut in half, also a part of stabilizing your blood sugar. We have new functional ingredients, things like sea buckthorn oil that have omega-7. They're all USDA certified, no added chemicals, toxins, etc. as always. So our collection has energy. Energy bar is really delicious. It's kind of like this... Uh, Mexican hot cocoa. It's like chocolate, but it has cinnamon. It contains adaptogenic mushrooms to increase energy and lower cortisol. Our beauty bars are probably have the biggest change. They went from like a strawberry kind of burst to now these ones are lemon, citrus, and poppy seed. They are so juicy and delicious. Contain sea buckthorn oil, as I was talking about earlier, enhances collagen production and hydrates the skin. And our detox bar, which I'm allowed to have a favorite, I'd say is my favorite. It has blue spirulina that supports the detox pathways in the body and has sesame seeds, which not only add a really delicious texture to the bar, which is blue, by the way, but also contains added calcium and vitamin E, etc. 
So check out the new super bars. And when you get to the website and you check out, type in podcast 15 for 15% off your purchase. I think about that all the time where my husband and I both work full-time busy jobs. And I think when I was growing up, I felt the pressure from society that I was supposed to be the one in charge of making food, providing food for my household. And even though I remember my dad cooking, he was always barbecuing things. I feel like that's something dads (laughs) like to do. But, you know, I still had that kind of pressure in my mind and like in my physical body, I could feel it, this need to provide food for my house and for my family, yet being so busy. And ultimately, that's part of how Sakara was created. I couldn't find what I was looking for out there in terms of the food and the type of nutrition that I needed. And so we had to create it. And in a sense, like we are a convenience food. We're a very different type of convenience food. And yes, of, you know, on the much higher end of the spectrum of convenience food, but bringing that food to people, especially to women who are working endless hours in their job, building a career, you know, trying to make an impact on the world and needing that somebody to take care of their food and their nutrition for them. But I do feel like that that kind of responsibility and weight I've been able to let go of now at this stage in my life and in my career and just feeling this communication between me and my husband where he feels an equal responsibility to provide food in the household. And I think that that's something that I'm proud that has shifted in our society where there's less of a gender responsibility, gender role around food. Absolutely. I mean, it is shifting. There's a great academic scholar named Emily Cantois, and she wrote a book about essentially what we call dude food. And, you know, one of the things that she argues is like, there's a way that, you know, even still in the food industry, certain types of cooking or cooking in order to impress women or, you know, cooking foods that are very like meat forward or very fat forward, that this has become dude food. It's called Diners, Dudes and Diets, How Gender and Power Collide in Food, Media and Culture. And it's so much about how we are still grappling with this idea of who's supposed to prepare food and who is at fault if food isn't considered perfect. Mm. You know, one of the things that people ask me because of the book I've written about fast food and I'm a newish mom, I have an 18-month-old son, you know, Mm. will you let your son eat fast food or will he be allowed to go to McDonald's? And I don't think my husband has ever been asked that question. Oh, wow. You know, I think that the assumption is like, as the mom, I make the food rules and everyone lives around me. But, you know, the reality is, is that my husband takes very seriously ordering the different types of foods for my son and make sure he's experiencing new food experiences. But I think at the end of the day, it's through engaging these topics and really talking about them that we're able to be more conscientious about the ways that we expect people to have a relationship to food and how compassionate we are at the end of the day in helping people make sense out of a very complicated and unequal food system. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I think we all just try to do the best that we can as parents. And there probably will come a time when I'll have to get fast food for my son. I think about it a lot in terms of trying to just make good decisions that I think are good for my son and recognizing that I will make a million mistakes, but, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to navigate food allergies and food preferences and the million and one advices on how to fight your kid being a picky eater. And I had a doctor recently say, like, give him French fries. (laughs) And I really appreciated that. He's like, he's like, you know, let him give him an opportunity to just have different types of food, like give him some French fries. And I'm like, okay, all of these different things. And I'm sure, you know, you kind of go through the same things and having a different relationship to thinking about what were the messages about food and eating that I received growing up that I don't want my son to grow up with. No, absolutely. I think that that's the main thing, right, is how do we create a healthy relationship to food, help our children create a healthy relationship to food, like the thought process around food, that it's not just you can eat this or you can't eat that, and not passing on our own neuroses to our children either. (laughs) Well, and the and the whole thing about, like, whether my son will be allowed to eat McDonald's. I mean, I ate, I think, a lifetime's worth of McDonald's as a kid. I don't know if I necessarily want to have McDonald's at the center of our culinary experiences. And yeah. at the same time, you know, when my son gets older, I want him to understand that it's not just about, like, the food we eat. It's about how the food we eat impacts and pressures people in ways that we might not like, about how hard people have to work to feed us, about what it does to the environment, about how we treat people who prepare our foods and the things that we want for them. And so Mm -hmm. if it was just about like saying, yes, you can eat that or no, you can't eat that, that would be super easy. But it's trying to help create a person in the world who understands like his own impact and that his impact actually matters is, I think, the trickiest part. Absolutely. So at Sakara, we have a service mission. We have our overall mission as a company to help transform lives and put you in the driver's seat of your own health. And then we have a service mission that is really about how healthy youths become healthy adults. And so our mission is to provide high quality nutrition education that empowers children to be in the driver's seat of their own health. We are involved with an organization called Wellness in the Schools, and our head chef, Tyler, was actually just put on Mayor Eric Adams' chef council, and we're developing recipes for public schools in New York City and underprivileged public schools in New York City to help be part of the change and part of that shifting kids' understanding of food and their relationship to food and how it plays a role in their health today and into the future. And I know that that's something that you're passionate about as well, about the role that schools actually play in shaping children's nutritional and lifestyle habits. Absolutely. I think that we are in a time where increasingly there's distrust and there is disinvestment in our public resources. And so one of the reasons why I wrote my book is that I don't want McDonald's success or failure of serving 
burgers and fries and selling Coke and milkshakes to have a material impact on whether kids have access to sports programs or cultural programs or have a place to play. I don't Mm. want McDonald's to be the only senior citizen center in some communities so that (laughs) this is the only place where older people can hang out and have a cup of coffee for free. I want there to be public resources. I want there to be a public good. And so I want schools to be a place where families that are struggling to get food on the table, they know that if they go to their school, that their kids are getting enough to eat, that they can talk to someone about getting enough to eat. I want to make sure that we have workplaces where people are not working five jobs to pay their rent and that they actually have time to like cook. I think that there is an assumption that people are reliant on fast food or convenience foods because they don't care or they don't know better. But I think that any person who's interested in food justice, the first question you have to ask yourself is, how are people paying their utilities? If you don't have access to consistent refrigeration, if you can't pay your gas bill or your electric bill because winter was so expensive, then how are you going to expect people to cook meals? And How are we going to make sure that people have time to not only cook a meal, but sit and eat it together, if not with their immediate family, with their friends and their community? And so these food issues are so much bigger than what we're eating. It's about living in a society that treats everyone, regardless of how much money they have, in a way with a level of dignity that there's an expectation that everyone will eat well and everyone will feel good. This is so interesting when you travel and you go to different parts of the world and different expectations of what people are eating and how long it takes to eat a meal. I mean, I'm often embarrassed. I used to do a lot of fellowships and exchanges with professionals from all over the world. And people would say, why are the Americans eating so fast. (laughs) And I'm like, because we have to hurry up back to our desk. You know, I've set such bad examples. There are times where students want to meet with me in my office and I'll say, oh, I'm just going to eat something real fast. And I literally eat like my entire lunch in three minutes in front Mm -hmm. of a student. (laughs) And I'm trying to set a good example of work-life balance. And I can't even say, can you give me 20 minutes, maybe even a full 30 minutes to consume my food? Yeah. And, And so I think that it's so important for me to say that everyone deserves that. It's a right for everyone. It shouldn't just be for people who are able to have the money to retire at 40 or people who can afford the best quality foods or people who have flexible schedules. It's like everyone deserves to have a life that allows Mm -hmm. them to engage with food in ways that are respectful and nourishing instead of just fueling up for the next overwork session. And again, as someone who has known to, you know, chug an ice latte in the middle of the day. The change has to start with me as well. well. And some people consider that a meal, chugging an ice latte in the middle of the day. Oh my God. That might be lunch. That's I mean, (laughs) indicted. Like, talk about fast food. What's faster than being able to drink your lunch like that? Oh my God. I, I mean, I have done it all in terms of my relationship to food and eating. And when I get 
down to it, the only times that I think I really enjoy food is when I'm able to cook for people, sit mm. down and enjoy it with others. And, you know, honestly, if I think about like over the course of this past month, how many times have I actually done that? Those are the things that I set as goals for myself because I want that for everyone. And so I should actually try to do it in my own life when I have the opportunity. Yeah, it's something that you have to prioritize, right? And I think on Instagram or TikTok in the social media world, self-care looks like a skincare routine or a bubble bath or getting your nails done. But is that really what fills our cups? Or is it something like sitting down for a healthy meal sitting down to share a meal with somebody that you love, taking that time to engage over that food and nourish your body and your soul at the same time. That is real self-care. I was recently in conversation with Carla Hall, who is just an incredible chef and an incredible thinker. And I was telling her, I said, you know, there's this tremendous amount of pressure, especially I think among African-American leaders and people who are trying to be successful across a lot of sectors, when we talk about issues of generational wealth, in my book, I talk a lot about this complicated way that people enter the fast food industry because they're trying to build economic opportunity and they're trying to build personal wealth. But one of the dangers of thinking that generational wealth only is money and property is that we lose sight of all of the things that are valuable. I think that the most important thing mm. to pass down to my son is a good example. I want my legacy with him to be, you know, my mom was really kind to people and she was really funny and we used to like hang out and it was joyful. And I want him to understand that his inheritance is a set of experiences of who I was mm. as a person and the passion I had for the things that were important to me. That is also generational wealth. It isn't just about having millions of dollars in the bank or having a business or having a brand. Those things can be helpful in preparing the next generation to take on certain type of financial endeavors. But at the end of the day, a family recipe is some of the most powerful generational wealth that we have. And I think that it's important along with the self-care conversation, when we think about what we have to offer, we have to think about our traditions mm -hmm. and our stories and our example as part of building a legacy. I never thought of our values as what we consider to be valuable, that you're passing along your values as the things that you value, that you find valuable, and that those things we think of as kind of these norms in the world mm -hmm. that you have to follow, but Actually, they can be things that are just as important and valuable as tangible goods. And they're very real. Yeah. The question is, if we decide that those are the most important things that we have to give, then that's what we're going to spend our time doing. Mm -hmm. I want my son to have incredible memories of me. I don't necessarily need him to have lots of money when I die. And so yeah. the question is, what am I going to spend the most time being intentional about. And I completely understand the desire for my son to have things that I didn't have or opportunities I didn't have. I think that a lot of my jobs in my 
teen years and my 20s were character building, but they were not fun. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I don't know if I necessarily need him to work in a copy shop till midnight like I did in college. And at the same time, when I think about the things that I got from my family, it had nothing to do with material experiences. And it was warmth and it was jokes and it was just the time together. And yeah. This is what makes this so challenging for all of us, regardless of the resources we have or don't have. What do we really feel like we have to offer? And do we live in a society that values the most important things that we have to offer? Yeah, my father passed away when I was 18, and he didn't leave behind anything for us. Zero. But what he left behind was his values and teaching me really a mindset, a way to think about the world, a way to think about myself in the world, about, I'd say he gave me my entrepreneurial spirit, both of my parents, but really my father, in telling me, you know, if you can't find a job, go create one for yourself. And it doesn't have to look pretty. It doesn't have to look like this ideal thing. You just get going. He taught me the value of hard work, and grit and all those things that helped me to get to where I am today without giving me the dollars to get here in a way that that was more valuable than having the dollars. Well, I mean, I think about this a lot too, about being in this incredible position where Gosh, this is this is, conversation has gone in a different direction and I love it because <laughs> I think these are the things that like matter. But I think, again, our food and our health and our wellness and our vitality are so tied into this. Yeah, because I think a lot about what will my son have after my husband and I are gone. We are classic sandwich generation people. We adopted my son when I was 41 and our relationship to time and parenting, it brings us to a certain place sometimes. Yeah. And I think about the fact that he's going to have my books and he's going to, when I'm gone, say like, oh, my mom did that. Right now I'm in the middle of writing a book. Like literally I was working on it right before this interview. And I have just a whole different relationship to what I create now because I think like, oh, this is what he's going to have. And this is what he can like... He's going to have an opportunity to learn about me in a way that a lot of people don't have with their parents. And totally. I take it so seriously and I take it as just this incredible challenge to help him know me and to be able to revisit who I was in this other context. And it has just changed everything for me. And I don't know if I have anything particularly insightful to say about that, but no, I, love I, it. I think that... I don't know. I've, I feel like I've just gotten like a do-over in life in this weird way, even though I'm like so middle-aged. <laughs> no, I, I love it. And wait, what is sandwich generation? Oh my gosh. I it's, that term. Oh my God, story of life. So sandwich generation are people who have small children and elderly parents at the same time. Oh. And so sandwich generation folks like myself are navigating in a year or so my son will start preschool. And then my mom recently had some health challenges that I also have to be mindful about. And so we are part of a generation that 
We don't also have grandparents in the ways that we may have had or some of our friends who started families younger did. And Mm -hmm. so my mom's ability to help with my son when he was an infant, if we expand our family, will be very different than what she'll be able to do with a second child. And so that balancing and that juggling is just the new normal for a lot of families in the U.S. and increasingly with professional women. I mean, a lot of my friends, it's funny, my friends either have kids who are like almost in college (laughs) or they're with me, (laughs) these like tiny kids. And what I appreciate about it, it creates a different community where I have my expert mom friends who are like, been there, done that. Like, you don't have to worry. And then my other friends were like, oh, you are also freaking out because you can't figure out what any of this is. So before I had my son, I had a miscarriage and it was almost a couple years prior to giving birth. And I went to go see a doctor in New York City And I was 32 at the time. And he was like, are you okay? This is like a teen pregnancy. And I I, I was like, wait, what? And he was like, yeah, most of my patients are between 38 and 42 that are giving birth in New York City. And it It's true. Women are having children later in life. And I never thought about it like this, of that the effects of also having older parents at the same time. And it's not only not having the help from the parents, but also then needing to also take care of them as well. And be a resource and understanding that they might be a different type of support. I have friends who had these incredible grandparent support and Having a baby when you're 26, 27, and your parents might be 52 is pretty incredible, right? And Mm -hmm. But there's also, you know, there's some real tensions in that. It's funny. I had friends who felt like, okay, my parents are going to be on deck to be like grandma and grandpa of the year. And their parents were like, we're still young. Like, we go out. (laughs) You know, like, we're on apps. We date. And so regardless of what it is, I think that... Everyone has to embrace the choice and the circumstance of where they are because looking back makes no sense. Totally. I love being a parent at this stage in my life. I don't think I could have been where I am 10 years ago and there's no regrets. And our son came into our life in March of 2021, just One day, 24 hours notice, we became parents through adoption. And then 10 weeks later, I won the Pulitzer Prize in history. And never in a million years would I imagine a year so amazing. And the opportunity to say the real story was my son and everything else became second. And so the time is the time, right? And I think that for me... Every relationship I have to what is important to me has just changed. And I'm just so fortunate that I'm able to actually understand and see that for what it is. And so we just always have to kind of look forward. Well, I love the direction that this conversation went. I know we started into it looking into a history of fast food and racial inequalities and that landscape and moved into motherhood and ourselves and our identities as mother and what we want for our children. But like you said, it's all tied together with 
our culture, with what we eat, with what we feed our children, how we nourish ourselves and our own self-care, and ultimately this journey of life that we're all on. So I love that you went there with me today and opened up and shared some of your own personal stories and your own personal life with us. I feel like I've learned from you in this conversation in so many different ways. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being open to it. Yeah. And we like to end our conversation with light work. So what is a piece of light work that you have for our Sakara Light listeners to help them shine their lights a bit brighter today? I would say make room for joy, regardless Mm. of what your job is or whatever stressful thing you're doing, make room for joy. I live in a world where my professional life is talking about really difficult stuff, about Mm. histories that are hard, about truths that a lot of people don't want to reckon with. And people often ask, how do you kind of deal with that? Because the stuff that you engage with, sometimes it's really hard. And I say, I prioritize joy. So there's a lot of looking at TikTok. There's a lot of group chats with my friends. I'm on a Mm. Real Housewives group chat that I live for, that every day I know something fun will happen on that group chat. Whatever it is, always make room for daily joy. That is what will wake you up in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to get through this tough time, but I know that something that's good for my heart and my spirit is going to happen. That's beautiful. I love it. And I love the group chat idea. (laughs) My mom is visiting my sister right now, and it was just her birthday earlier this week. And I asked, what did you guys do for your birthday? And a friend of hers actually from high school came over and she said she loves hanging out with this friend from high school because she's just filled with laughs. And Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that and how I actually love to be around my sister because she's just always laughing. She and her husband are just always laughing, trying to bring laughter into their life. And I feel like I'm not a very laughy type of person. I'm definitely more <laughs> an emotional and like I'll open up and I'll I'll cry. I like cry in every episode of this podcast. But it made me just think about, yeah, how can we bring more laughter and joy into my life? So this light work really is speaking to me and I know it'll speak to so many of our listeners. Well, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Today, we're getting back to the basics of Sakara, And so we wanted to share a bit about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program for all of those listeners that are new to us. We created this program after healing ourselves to help others feel the same transformation that we experienced through the power of food as medicine. This program is based on the science behind a whole food, plant-rich diet and has been crafted around our proprietary nine pillars of nutrition, which focuses on things like nutrient diversity and eating the rainbow, eating your water and getting enough sulfur-rich veggies into your diet, as well as cultivating body intelligence in order to have true mind, body, and soul transformation. The Sakara Signature Nutrition Program makes clean eating easy It's entirely free from meat, gluten, dairy, refined sugar, pesticides, harmful chemicals, and GMOs. The menu is chef-crafted and changes weekly to highlight seasonal ingredients and recipes so you never have to sacrifice taste for eating healthy. 
If you're interested in learning more about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program, head to sakara.com to see how you can customize the program to fit your needs and lifestyle. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com. And for a limited time, we wanted to give you all a gift of transformation. So use the code PODCAST20 at checkout for 20% off your first order of Sakara Life. I think so many of us are so busy these days trying to take care of the entire world around us, whether you're a busy professional or a mom. I encourage you to give this gift of nutrition to yourself. You deserve to feel amazing in your body. And when you nourish yourself, then you're able to better take care of the world around you and share your special gifts with the world.